I want to talk today about the contrast between myths that are widely believed by the public at large and what I regard as a reality which typically contradicts those myths. show everyone i'm dave yost and this is okay let me tell you why you're wrong so i've gotten some requests from listeners to talk about the looming trade war that it looks like the united states is going to engage in i was a little hesitant to do so only because it's a topic that is currently very politically charged if you're a regular listener to the show you know that I don't like to cover political topics or put a political bent on topics. This is a podcast for understanding economics, and I try at all times to stick to the economics of a given topic rather than stray into the political realm. More often than not, politics tends to distort economics. My educational background includes a bachelor's in political science and a master's in economics. And having studied both, I tend to sum up the difference between the two as politics is a philosophy. Political differences are a matter of the underlying philosophy that you feel is the right answer to the question of governance. Economics is a science. Its conclusions tend to be based on data and provable theories. You can have a general economic philosophy that drives your study and research, but unless you can back up your philosophy with hard data, it's not really serious economics. In politics and political science, most arguments will eventually whittle down to a point where both sides simply have to agree to disagree. Because when two people with wildly different ways of viewing the world argue, that's usually the best you can get. In economics, this kind of thing is much less common, because economic debates tend to involve much more solid footing 
based on a common acceptance by all parties involved of certain norms and truths. There's still plenty of debate in economics, and, and plenty to debate, but it tends to be much less entrenched and much more scientific than politics. So I say all that to say this. I want to avoid the partisan traps of politicized topics, but at the same time, I want to provide you, my listeners, with the economic context to better understand the issues of the day. Now, for our purposes here, I've decided to square this circle by focusing less on the specifics of current events and more on the wider context when it comes to the topic of trade wars. And by doing so, I, I hope that I can get you all a, a little smarter on the topic without getting bogged down in the partisan political issues. We'll see how that works, but let's give it a go. Just to catch you up in case you haven't been watching the news lately, what we're talking about when we say trade war is when countries engage in imposing a series of escalating trade barriers between each other. Now, trade wars are usually incited with what could be considered the best of intentions. The reason that a country would want to block imports or at least make imports from other countries more expensive is to promote domestic producers of a given product. If your country is importing a lot of wool from other countries who are selling it at incredibly low prices, that's going to hurt the producers of wool within your own country because while they produce the same general product for whatever reason, their production costs are higher than wool made outside of your country, and so foreign wool is going to be cheaper. By imposing a tariff on foreign wool, the government of your country can effectively raise the price of imported wool, because the cost of the tariff will be passed on to the consumers, and artificially make domestic products of wool more competitive against foreign imports. At least that's the idea. We'll get into what happens from there later in the episode. But before we get too deep into the overall concept, let's start off with some history and see if we can't find some common trends when it comes to trade wars. After all, there have been many, many, many instances of this kind of thing in the past. To keep from being too much like Adam Smith, I'm going to avoid providing historical context by taking things all the way back to the beginning of creation. Instead, I'm going to keep it to the 20th and 21st century. Except, mm, no, I lied. I'm going to give one example from the 19th century, but that's it, I promise. We're going to start off by looking at the Tariff Act of 1890. Uh, it was proposed by then-member of the House of Representatives and soon-to-be President William McKinley. Uh, the Tariff Act imposed steep duties on all imports into the U.S. Of course, the reasoning behind these tariffs was one of economic protectionism. In the late 1800s, many sectors of U.S. manufacturing were struggling to get off the ground because cheaper imports for those same products were readily available. Protectionism often gets a bad rap. 
I'll spoil the ending for you a bit and let you know that there is a broad consensus, again, uh, across most economists, that in the end, protection winds up hurting the economy more than it helps. But I'd like to point out that the protectionist idea isn't illogical. It makes sense, or at least it makes enough sense. If you've got a burgeoning industry in your country, it's going to run into issues when it confronts the barriers to entry into the global market for their product. The biggest issue that they're going to confront is what are called economies of scale. Economies of scale refers to the ability of a company as well established in their particular market being able to provide their product at a lower price to a wider consumer base precisely because they are already well established in their particular market. If you're trying to get a startup going to, that sells light bulbs, you're going to have a hard time competing against GE. And GE doesn't have to actively do anything against you for you to have a hard time. Because what you're working against is the fact that GE has a massive production capability for light bulbs. In the time it takes you to manufacture one of your artisan light bulbs, GE's global manufacturing capability has produced several thousand. GE also already has established deals with uh, retailers to carry their product and established uh, logistical apparatus to move their product around the world. As a result of all these things, and here's the real killer, GE can offer their light bulbs at a fraction of the cost of yours. And none of this is underhanded on GE's part. They took decades to get to the level of scale that they're currently at. The reason they have all these things is because they sunk the money into establishing them. And as a result of all that work and expense, they've got to the point where they've become so efficient at making light bulbs that they're able to keep the price to consumers incredibly low. And you, with your small craft light bulb manufacturing setup that's out of your garage, can't possibly compete with that. The same is true for international trade. As I said, in the late 1800s, the U.S. was keen to get all of the advantages there were to get out of the Industrial Revolution. But because Britain and a fair amount of Europe had already industrialized, foreign manufacturers had the advantage of economies of scale. And as my light bulb example should have illustrated, getting past those economies of scale can be a tall order. So, U.S. lawmakers wanted to level the playing field and give domestic production a chance to catch up. And that wasn't a pipe dream either. At the time, transportation costs were high enough that it was at least feasible for U.S. manufacturers, if they could grow to a certain point, to be able to achieve economies of scale themselves and offer products at a lower price than their larger European competitors. This was exactly what they were trying to do when it came to products like tin plates. At the time, tin plates were a major import. Tens of millions of dollars a year worth of tin plates were imported into the U.S. As a result, U.S. tin plate manufacturing couldn't keep up. 
without economies of scale, they couldn't get their price down. And they couldn't build those economies of scale without profits made from the sale of tin plates, which they couldn't sell because their price was too high, because they didn't have the economies of scale they needed to get the price down. And round and round the cycle went. The Tariff Act of 1890 raised the tariff on imported tin plates from 30% to 70% to force the price of imported tin plates up to a level where the U.S. manufacturers could get some breathing room. Now, the members of Congress in 1890 weren't entirely bent on protectionism as a philosophy. They wanted to help out domestic manufacturers, but even in 1890, they knew that raising tariffs would come with consequences. As a result, they peppered the bill with stipulations designed to mitigate the risks that would come with protectionist policy. When it came to tin plates, they stated that if domestic production reached a third of imports before the year 1897, then foreign imports would be allowed into the U.S. at no duty. The idea being that if the U.S. manufacturers could get a one-third foothold into the market, then there'd be no longer the need for protectionist tariffs, and so they'd get rid of them. The bill also tried to mitigate retaliation by eliminating tariffs entirely on certain products. Sugar, molasses, tea, coffee, and animal hides could be imported with no duties to pay. Here, McKinley and the other lawmakers recognized the risk involved with raising tariffs, namely that those countries that are trying to export their goods to U.S. consumers are going to take a hit, since their products are now artificially more expensive in the U.S. market. Now, those countries aren't going to just sit and huff over the fact that they're losing money off their exports. They're going to retaliate. And they're going to retaliate by raising tariffs on goods being exported from the U.S. As a result, domestic manufacturing of tin plates might boom, but other industries that rely on exporting their goods will get hurt because now those goods are artificially more expensive in the foreign markets. And that's a trade war. The way McKinley tried to avoid this problem was by eliminating those certain tariffs. Britain might take a hit on not being able to sell as many tin plates in the U.S. markets, but their sugar exports would benefit massively from no longer having to pay any kind of duty. The hope was that the incentives offered by eliminating some tariffs would be too good for exporting countries to pass up, and so they'd grudgingly accept the higher tariffs. The goal being to stimulate targeted industries while avoiding an all-out trade war. The results were... mixed. Estimates show that it's, it probably sped up the growth of the domestic tin plate production by about a decade. But countries like Britain still push for retaliatory tariffs, and of course the real loser, as is the case in almost all trade wars, was the consumer. After all, the tariffs may have helped some U.S. manufacturers, but they did so by making their product more expensive, 
imported tin plates had been cheap, which is why consumers chose them over the more expensive, domestically made tin plates. By instituting the tariff, domestic tin plate prices stayed the same, and imports just became as expensive. It's great if you own a tin plate factory, but if you're buying tin plates or buying something that uses tin plates, all you're seeing is prices going up. That increase in prices was so unpopular that then in the next election, U.S. voters handed control of the presidency and the House, or both houses of Congress, to the Democratic Party, who quickly moved to lower the tariffs. The next example I'll give you is the Fordney McCumber Tariff of 1922. It's a little bit of a tongue twister. Once again, these were tariffs enacted to provide protection to U.S. domestic industries and agriculture. During the 19-teens, U.S. agriculture had a bit of a boom, as most of Europe was too busy waging war against each other to do much farming. World War I created a large demand across Europe for agricultural imports, which the U.S. and U.S. farmers were more than happy to provide. With the spike in demand, U.S. farmers were able to benefit from the higher prices on their goods, and most decided to take out loans in order to expand their acreage and improve their farm equipment. The problem came after the war ended, and Europe resumed their regular domestic farming. Global prices on agricultural products dropped, and with European countries supplying most of their own food again, U.S. farmers were left with a glut of product that they now couldn't export. With decreased international demand and lower prices, U.S. farmers were struggling to pay off the loans that they had taken out. The tariffs created under the Fordney-McCumber Bill were designed to protect U.S. industries. They basically ensured that no foreign product could undercut the prices being charged by U.S. companies. They also allowed duties on imports to be calculated based on domestic prices rather than the price being charged by exporting countries. The results were, well, mixed again. The protections created in the Fordney-McCumber Bill can be credited with helping to launch the Roaring Twenties in the U.S. They were, after all, a boon to U.S. industries. However, there was a hollowness to any benefits offered by the bill. Industry benefited. Farmers benefited. But prices on all manner of goods rose. So while U.S. farmers did see a, a 2 to 3% increase in purchasing power over that period, they also saw a 60% increase in the cost of harnesses, a 100% increase in the cost of plows, a 110% increase in the cost of mowing machines, and a 75% increase in the cost of farm wagons. Trading partners raised their own tariffs in response. With France, uh, they, they increased the tariff on automobiles from 40% to 100%, and other European countries followed suit behind them. 
The tariff was also connected to increases in the cost of living across the entire country, with estimates on the uh, increased food costs ranging from 9.4% in New York City to 16.5% in Chicago. In the end, the Bureau of Research within the American Farm Bureau estimated that the tariff actually cost American farmers more than $300 million annually. Now this next one is probably a name that most of you have heard before, even if you weren't sure what it was at the time. The Smoot-Hawley Tariff is famous uh, as, you know, at least in, in the popular conception, for having caused the Great Depression. The truth is a little less dramatic. In 1930, as a response to the collapse of the stock market and the beginning phase of the Great Depression, once again, lawmakers sought to protect American industries from the building economic turmoil by implementing what would be the second highest tariffs in U.S. history to that point. The immediate result was actually a significant uptick in payrolls, construction contracts, and industrial production. However, whether or not this would have sustained itself will never be known, because in 1931, uh, the credit installed of Austria collapsed setting off a global crisis. The U.S. may have been manufacturing more products, but due to the collapsing markets, no one could afford to import them. Uh, This was made worse by the fact that, as we should come to expect at this point, other countries imposed retaliatory tariffs of their own. Canada, at the time, the U.S.'s largest trading partner slapped tariffs on 16 U.S. products that accounted for about 30% of all exports to that country. Uh, the Canadians also responded, as countries are wont to do in a trade war, by establishing a closer trade relationship with other countries who aren't imposing such steep tariffs. In this case, Britain. The real problem with Smoot-Hawley, though, wasn't that it caused the Great Depression. It, it didn't. Or at least, it didn't cause it by itself. Many factors went into causing the Great Depression, and even without Smoot-Hawley, there still would have been one. Where Smoot-Hawley really had an impact was after the initial hit to the U.S. economy, recovery became much harder. Because with the retaliatory tariffs in place, any attempts by U.S. manufacturing to dig themselves out of the Depression were stymied by the fact that they couldn't access foreign markets to export goods because retaliatory tariffs were up. The U.S. economy might have been able to pull itself out of the effects of the Depression as much as five years earlier than it did, if it could have found customers for its goods. But thanks to Smoot-Hawley, that wasn't going to happen. Smoot-Hawley was enacted to lower unemployment, which in 1930 was at 8%. Instead, unemployment rose to 16% in 1931, and then 25% by 1933. Now again, Smoot-Hawley isn't entirely or exclusively to blame for this, 
but it did contribute on a very real level. Now, there's a long history of tariffs and trade wars throughout the history of the world. As promised, I'm not going to cover every last one. And I think that the three that I have covered should give you a good idea of some of the issues and pitfalls that come with engaging in protectionist trade policy. Of course, these aren't meant to be definitive. There are a lot of nuances to international trade, and as with all macroeconomics, it's very complicated. But I do think that there are several important lessons that can be learned from those examples that should be considered when thinking about trade wars. The first lesson is the importance of what, because I'm a big fan of the Back to the Future movies, I'm going to call four-dimensional thinking. All you have to do is drive the time vehicle directly toward that screen, accelerating 88 miles an hour. Wait a minute, Doc. If I drive straight towards the screen, I'm going to crash into those Indians. Marty, you're not thinking fourth-dimensionally. You'll instantly be transported to 1885, and those Indians won't even be there. Right. What I mean by this is that when considering tariffs, you have to understand that such a decision will not exist in a vacuum. There will be reactions to it. There will likely be retaliatory actions. If tariffs could be imposed without counter-reaction or consequences, then there'd be no reason not to impose them. But in all cases, global trading partners will not just sit by and say, well, shucks, I guess our export market is going to take a hit, but what can you do? By the way, I don't know what foreign country that the U.S. trades with has that accent, but I feel pretty good about that. No. Tariffs beget retaliatory tariffs, which necessitate further retaliatory and protectionist action. Even the term itself implies that it is not a one-sided act. It's not called the isolated imposing of a tariff. It's called a trade war. It can become a vicious cycle if left unchecked. And as we saw through the historical examples, the ultimate loser is the, is the consumer. Tariffs protect industry, but raise prices, which is going to hurt the purchasing power of all the regular walking around folks out there. But you may say, well, I'm not a farmer, or I'm not in the market for tin plates, or wool, or steel. And that brings us to the second salient point that I, I think is important when it comes to tariffs. And that is the importance of understanding the interconnectedness of the economy. Back in the, the episode I did uh, on Book 1, Chapter 1 of The Wealth of Nations, I ended the episode by reading a very long passage from the book about a workman's coat. I read the passage in full, which is about a full page long, because it, it highlighted one of the big, big points that Smith wanted to make in his writings, which was that the, the simplest of things in our lives tie into a greater social fabric, which connects us all. Now, I won't read the passage again. If you're curious, just go check out episode 18. But the short version is that when thinking about something as, as simple as the basic coat worn by a laborer, we have to marvel at everything that went into making it and getting it to the laborer. 
the shepherds raising the sheep and shaving the wool, the weavers and spinners who make the raw material into wool fabric, the people that invented and manufactured the machines that those weavers and spinners use, the, the dyers who dye the coat, and the people who gather the materials that the dyers use, the carriage or the ship that transports the coat, and the people who build those carriages and ships. Smith wanted us to realize that the economy has a level of interconnectivity that is astonishing once you start to pull back from it and see everything that is required by so many people just to put a cheap wool coat on someone. And that level of interconnectivity extends across all markets and all people to all aspects of the economy and really to all aspects of human life. As a result, affecting the delicate balance that is created at the point of equilibrium in one market can have staggering effects across all markets. So you may not be in the market for tin plates, but if you buy something that is manufactured by machines that do use tin plates, then in a trade war over tin plates, the price of that product that you buy will also be going up in order to help the manufacturer absorb the additional cost of the tin plates that they need to make their machines work. And whatever that product may be, if you then use it to make something else, then you're going to have to raise your prices to absorb the increased prices that you're paying, which is going to affect demand for the product that you make. And on and on and on. There are no isolated effects in an economy. Because as Smith noted, everything is inherently connected to everything else. And this leads us to the, the third big takeaway here. Which is that it may very well be possible to win a trade war. There are examples from history, like the Anglo-Irish trade wars, where there was a clear winner and a clear loser. And it may even be easy to win a trade war, depending on the details of your strategy and the nature of the tariffs imposed, you could find ways that might be considered smart and savvy to wage such a war. And protectionist policies will benefit the targeted industries. Being relieved of the pressure to have to fully compete on a level playing field with other companies that may have greater economies of scale than you will create good results for the protected industries. And those downstream industries that use the protected product will be able to absorb the higher prices and will generally be fine. But at some point, someone has to pay, truly pay, the higher price created by the tariffs. And that person is almost always the end consumer. You. On everything from breakfast cereal to iPhones, tariffs will cause prices for consumers to rise. And with those rising prices, purchasing power will shrink. And with shrinking purchasing power, fewer products will be purchased, which may cause those downstream industries that had to raise their prices to accommodate the higher cost of 
buying domestic rather than imported materials, to react to that loss in sales by contracting and laying off employees. Now, those laid-off employees will have little to no money to spend, so fewer products from other industries are being purchased, which will cause those industries to contract as well, and the vicious cycle continues. Now, as we've often talked about, that is the theoretical idea, and theory doesn't always translate to the real world perfectly, because the real world is a complicated place with a lot of variables. So tariffs and trade wars do not necessarily mean the beginning of the economic apocalypse, but it is something to keep in mind. I would note, though, that economists of all stripes and schools do tend to agree on the harmful effects of high trade barriers. Adam Smith wrote in The Wealth of Nations, Book 2, Chapter 3, quote, In every country... It always is and must be the interest of the great body of the people to buy whatever they want of those who sell it cheapest. The proposition is so very manifest that it seems ridiculous to take any pains to prove it, nor could it ever have been called into question had not the interested sophistry of merchants and manufacturers confounded the common sense of mankind. Their interest is, in this respect, directly opposite to that of the great body of the people, as it is the interest of freemen of a corporation to hinder the rest of the inhabitants from employing any workmen but themselves, so it is the interest of the merchants and manufacturers of every country to secure to themselves the monopoly of the home market." Again, even in Smith's day, he's recognizing that domestic manufacturers will always try to push out foreign competitors so that they don't have to compete against them. Now, Milton Friedman didn't think too much of protectionist trade policy either. Surprise, surprise, if you've ever read Milton Friedman. Uh, Here's a clip of him uh, that I think is particularly good uh, of him talking about his thinking on tariffs and protectionist policy. This carries over to the terminology we use. I've already referred to the misleading terminology of protection. But when people talk about a favorable balance of trade, what is that term taken to mean? It's taken to mean that we export more than we import. But from the point of view of our well-being, that's an unfavorable balance. That means we're sending out more goods and getting fewer in. Each of you in your private household would know better than that. You don't regard it as a favorable balance when you have to send out more goods to get less coming in. It's favorable when you can get more by sending out less. This tendency to concentrate on the productive side of our lives and to neglect the side of consumption is reinforced by the fact that even for the productive side of our lives, the visible effects of tariffs are good, the invisible effects of tariffs are bad, even on the productive side. I have already referred to the steel case. It's perfectly clear that if you restrict the imports of steel, there are some 
workers in the steel industry who will have jobs they otherwise would not have. The beneficial effects for them of a tariff is perfectly clear. But if we import less steel, foreigners earn fewer dollars. They have fewer dollars to spend in this country. There are people around the country who will not have jobs, not have productive jobs, because exports do not develop. Here, I should not have to spell this out in great detail here in Kansas. This is a great agricultural state. Agriculture is one of our main, agricultural products are one of our main exports. The harmful effects of steel imports are to reduce jobs in agriculture. But that's invisible. The people who might have been producing goods to sell abroad don't know they might have had that job. So, out of sight, out of mind. And as a result, on both the side of consumption and the side of producers, you have the concentrated special interest versus the diffused general interest. Now, as with anything in economics, so much of it comes down to what your goal is. It's why I always say that the answer to every question in economics is, it depends. If the protection of one industry is so important that it outweighs the negative effects that will be wrought as a result of those policies, then tariffs may be entirely justified, and in fact be a net positive. But that is a hard case to make. Most economists will tell you that while free trade can have adverse effects on certain markets in the grand scope of things, it ultimately leads to better results. Think of it this way. Free trade hurts certain domestic industries because inevitably other countries will be able to do things better, more efficiently, and thus at a lower price than us. Allowing those products to be imported will hurt domestic manufacturers of those products. But it's a huge benefit to all the downstream industries that use uh, those products, allowing them to make their goods at a lower cost and thus sell those goods at a lower price. So you may ask, do uh, these economists just expect us to abandon certain time-honored domestic industries? And the answer to that, in a word, is yes. Now, if you think losing whole industries to, to imports from other countries will, will hollow out our economy, the standard retort from free marketers is that the solution to that problem lies in what's known as comparative advantage. Now, this goes back to the days of Ricardo. Comparative advantage is the idea that countries, regions, markets, whatever denomination you want to think about, all are going to be uniquely suited to doing different things. No matter what you are, there should be something, either based on your geography or the labor market or the presence of natural resources, that you can do better than anybody else. So the answer from free market economists is to do that thing. Don't try to do things that you're not suited to. Don't try to do things that others can do better. Don't try to artificially prop up a given industry. Do your thing and let the chips fall where they may. 
by focusing on your unique ability, your comparative advantage, you can export that thing better than anywhere else and import everything else that you can't do better. This leads to the highest quality of goods at the lowest prices everywhere in the world, so long as there are no barriers to trade. Now, one more time, that's the theory. And I will say it again because it's worth saying again. There's many a slip twixt the cup and the lip. Theory works. In theory. When it's pulled into the real world, there are many other considerations to, well, consider. So as I said at the top, I've been actively avoiding getting into the specifics of the current debate over tariffs because right now the debate is largely political and and not truly a debate over economics. And I'm going to stick to that. But in providing you economic context rather than partisan political palaver, I feel like I can get into the context of the specific tariffs being debated. Some of you may be watching the news now and be thinking that protectionist policies for the steel industry are an unprecedented move on the part of the current administration. You may be saying either, I can't believe they're doing this. No administration has ever made such a move. Or you might be saying, finally, someone is finally standing up for our steel workers and this is the first time the government has tried to help them out. Well, to both groups, whichever side of the fence you're on, I mean, it's right there in the title of the podcast. Let me tell you why you're wrong. As you might have picked up from the Milton Friedman clip earlier, he makes mention of protectionist policies for the steel industry. And that's because we've been trying to protect the U.S. steel industry for about the last, oh, 40 years or so. Towards the end of the 19th century and through the beginning of the 20th, the U.S. steel production experienced a boom. This can be chalked up to a great many things. The expansion of the railroads, the the rise of the Industrial Revolution, and the transformation of cities from tightly packed clusters of of wooden kindling. Uh, Don't forget, I'm from Chicago. to vast rows of skyscrapers. I'm pretty sure we've all seen the picture of construction workers having lunch on a steel girder 40 stories up. Basically, everything during this time seemed to require steel. The good times largely continued well into the 20th century as, in the wake of World War II, U.S. manufacturing was really the only major source of industrial production left untouched by the war. This meant that, with Europe and Japan desperately needing steel to rebuild, U.S. steel manufacturers effectively held a global monopoly on the product. Of course, while holding that monopoly made the U.S. steel industry massive profits through the post-war period, it also had other very predictable effects. Namely, that with a massive global demand to fill, and no other competitors in sight except each other, 
U.S. steel manufacturers just kind of stopped innovating. They also controlled prices in the same way a monopoly would. This eventually led to President Kennedy uh, for him to butt heads with the steel executives in a famous uh, speech on April 11th, 1962. The simultaneous and identical actions of United States Steel and other leading steel corporations increasing steel prices by some $6 a ton constitute a wholly unjustifiable and irresponsible defiance of the public interest. In this serious hour in our nation's history, when we are confronted with grave crises in Berlin and Southeast Asia, when we are devoting our energies to economic recovery and stability, when we are asking reservists to leave their homes and families for months on end, and servicemen to risk their lives, and four were killed in the last two days in Vietnam, and asking union members to hold down their wage requests at a time when restraint and sacrifice are being asked of every citizen, the American people will find it hard, as I do, to accept a situation in which a tiny handful of steel executives whose pursuit of private power and profit exceeds their sense of public responsibility can show such utter contempt for the interests of 185 million Americans. A few gigantic corporations have decided to increase prices in ruthless disregard of their public responsibilities. Some time ago, I asked each American to consider what he would do for his country. And I asked the steel companies. In the last 24 hours, we had their answer. Through the 1950s and the 1960s, despite warnings from outside the industry, American steel companies just kept churning out the same product without trying to improve their methods or make them more efficient or improve the quality of their product. After all, why would they? They had a lock on the global market for their product. Why waste money on improvements when you can just sit back and let the profits roll in? Because they were going to keep rolling in, no matter what, forever. Of course, we know that's not how markets work. While U.S. steel manufacturers were resting on their laurels, new steel producers were cropping up in Japan and Europe. And they were innovating new technologies that would eventually allow them to produce steel more efficiently than their American counterparts. Professor uh, John Conabear from the University of Iowa and the author of the book Trade Wars uh, was quoted as saying about the U.S. steel industry, quote, They just used the protection to raise prices, fatten profits, pay their executives more, and avoid automating and reducing costs. They didn't use the breathing space they gained to modernize. So much of the U.S. steel industry is using obsolete technology, which is why they can't compete. So as these foreign competitors entered the market, their output, combined with the U.S. output, saturated the global market for steel vastly exceeding demand, and leading to a massive drop in global prices, which kicked off a recession in the steel market between 1973 and 1975, 
which would become known cleverly as the Steel Crisis. The crisis would spell the end for companies like Youngstown Sheet and Tube out of Youngstown, Ohio, and cripple companies like Bethlehem Steel and U.S. Steel. In the years since the crisis, the steel industry has repeatedly pushed for protectionist trade policy to help it recover from the pitfalls and blunders of the mid-20th century. And in many cases, it may come as a surprise to some of you, they have almost always been granted those protections. In recent memory alone, you may have forgotten about the controversy over the 2002 steel tariffs put in place by George w, the, the George W. Bush administration. If you have, let me give you a little refresher. On March 5, 2002, the Bush administration, in response to pressure from U.S. steel manufacturers, about 30 of whom who had recently declared bankruptcy, raised the tariffs on imported steel from a range of 0 to 1% to a range of 8 to 30%, depending on the country of origin. Exceptions were made in the case of Canada and Mexico, as raising tariffs would violate our agreements with those countries under NAFTA, and a few other developing countries were given exemptions as well. In reaction to these tariffs, the EU announced that they would impose, wait for it, retaliatory tariffs, and filed a case with the dispute settlement body of the World Trade Organization to determine if these tariffs were fair. The WTO determined that the tariffs were not imposed during a time of import surge, as imports to the U.S. had actually dropped in the previous year, and that they violated the U.S.'s WTO tariff rate commitments, risking $2 billion in sanctions that were going to be imposed by the WTO if the tariffs were not removed. The Bush administration stated that they would keep the tariffs in place. That is, until the EU threatened even more retaliatory tariffs on oranges and cars. On December 4th of 2003, the Bush administration withdrew the tariffs, stating that, quote, These safeguard measures have now achieved their purpose, and as a result of changed economic circumstances, it is time to lift them. When it was all said and done, the U.S. International Trade Commission estimated that the tariffs resulted in a $41.6 million welfare loss to the U.S. economy, and most steel, consu most steel consuming businesses reported that there would be no change in employment, international competitiveness, or capital investment whether the tariffs had stayed in place or not. Beyond the similarities to other trade wars, it, it is interesting to note some, some points of geography involved in this particular game of chicken. More than a few have pointed out that imposing steel tariffs typically stands to benefit steel manufacturers as well as workers in the steel industry, and that a large amount of these manufacturers and workers reside in Pennsylvania, which is a significant swing state in U.S. presidential elections. Likewise, 
the retaliatory tariffs threatened by the EU that got the Bush administration to crack were against oranges, which come from Florida, and cars, which come from Michigan, both presidential swing states themselves. Now, before any of you puff up in outrage over such an obvious and callous bid for support in elections at the expense of U.S. consumers, do keep in mind that it seems like every U.S. president since Ronald Reagan has pulled the same or at least similar maneuvers. Uh, One specific, even more recent example would be the Obama administration's tariff on Chinese tires as an anti-dumping measure in 2009. The tariff stayed in place until 2012, and were later found to have had no impact on the wages or the employment in the U.S. tire industry. This is all to say that the imposing of tariffs in an an effort to protect U.S. industries is neither a new idea nor a particularly archaic one. We've been doing this since the founding of the country, and we've been doing it all the way up until the recent past. So to wrap it up, trade wars are often started with the best intentions, but interfering with free trade can have consequences that range from the inconvenient to the detrimental. Most trade wars demonstrate a net total loss to the greater economy, even when they do succeed in protecting the particular industry that they are targeted towards. All of this is what leads most economists and policymakers to paraphrase the WOPR computer program Joshua from the movie War Games when he concluded, Strange game. The only winning move is not to play. How about a nice game of chess? And that's our show for this week. I hope that you all walk away from this with a little more of that magical word context, which is what I hope I'm always able to provide. Beyond that, I encourage all of you to make up your own minds on the virtues of protecting industries versus the risks of messing with free trade. There is an argument to be made for both, but your conclusion likely depends on what you care more about. As always... If you'd like to tell me why I'm wrong, come on out and join our Facebook group where you can post a comment or suggest a topic for a future episode. If you're not on Facebook, you can email me directly at okaylemmetellyouwhyyou'rewrong at gmail.com. That's all one word, no comma, no apostrophe. Uh, Be sure to take a minute and give the podcast a a rating and a review on iTunes. Uh, Again, really helps uh, get the podcast noticed. Thanks always to George Sacco for composing the music that I use in the intro and outro of the show. Don't forget that I do have another podcast out there. Uh, If you're uh, as interested in wedding planning as you are in economics, uh, come check out Let's Plan a Wedding with Mandy and Dave, uh, where uh, myself and my fiance talk about uh, issues involved in planning our wedding. Uh, Of course, Thanks to all of you for listening. We will be back next week with the Wealth of Nations, Book 1, Chapter 6. 
and then back in two weeks with another topic episode. With that, I've been Dave Yost, and this has been OK. Let me tell you why you're wrong. Marty, it's perfect. You're just not thinking fourth dimensionally. Right, right. I have a real problem with that.